Now I invite you to turn with me online or on paper to Psalm 25, verses 1 through 22. It's also in that digital order of worship that you downloaded. Uh, Today, we're in the second part of a three-part series on wisdom. Uh, Working wisdom, personal wisdom, and corporate wisdom. Those are the three weeks of our series. This psalm, Psalm 25 by David, is going to help us think about personal wisdom. So here now, I, you know, I was going to originally just preach on half of the psalm, but it's hard to take a psalm, uh, just, just half of it, it leaves you wanting more. They're really cohesive units. So here now, Psalm 25, verses 1 through 22, the entirety of it, which is God's word, eternally true. Of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust, let me not be put to shame, let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will He instruct in the way that He should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and His offspring shall inherit the land." The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You who are our rock and our redeemer, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow us 30, 60, and 100-fold. Amen. The shepherd wants the sheep to have a steady diet. And I don't know about the science of nutrition for sheep, Uh, But I do know a little bit about rabbit nutrition. Uh, We have a rabbit, and our rabbit eats vegetables twice a day. 
and the rabbit also eats ample hay all day long. And then each day we give the rabbit a little ball of bunny pellets. And honestly, I don't know why that diet works, uh, but I trust the farmers and the veterinarians who taught our family how to take care of our rabbit and give her good nutrition. Now, I do know something about the diet and nutrition for a flock of God's people. Our nutrition comes from the Bible, the Word of God, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word inspired and preserved by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. So to keep our diet well-rounded, I use a lectionary that gives us four passages of Scripture to use every Sunday and moves us through the breadth of the biblical story every single year. Our steady diet consists each week of an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, a gospel reading, and a psalm. And in choosing which passage I preach, I give us a steady diet so that over the course of 52 Sundays, you get roughly equal sermons on each of those four kinds of passages, Old Testament, New Testament, gospel, and psalms. And in each passage, I preach verse by verse. I I do that to model two wise practices for you about Scripture. Number one, it's wise to read the whole Bible and not just isolated favorite parts. But two, it is wise to dig down deep to see how a passage is put together. Gaining wisdom from Scripture is a long, slow process that too often we easily give up on. Now, if it was up to our rabbit, she would eat carrots and bunny pellets, um, and she would continue to just use the bathroom uh, in the same hay that she eats from. Now, the farmers and vets say that we're responsible to do something about that, and so we do. We make sure that her hay stays fresh, that she has vegetables in the right amount, pellets in the right amount, and ample hay. And I'd like to know more about how bunny nutrition works exactly, Uh, but my question for you today is, would you like to know more about biblical nutrition? Uh, That's what wisdom is. It is skill in the art of godly living. It is the nutrition that comes from a steady diet of Scripture. And that's what David is going to show us today on a very personal level. Because God has given us His Word, we must enrich our diet with wisdom. And David shows us this wisdom on a personal level here. He talks about gaining wisdom, defining wisdom, finding wisdom, and asking for wisdom. Gaining defining, finding, and asking for wisdom. Okay, let's go through this thing. So first, gaining wisdom in verses one through five. This is the how. Has anyone ever asked you how you have gained wisdom? I mean, if you ask me, I would point back to a song I listened to when I was 16 years old. And some of you will know a singer-songwriter, Stephen Curtis Chapman. He took a proverb from the Bible and he turned it into a song. Not a campy Christian song, but actually a song with good melody uh, and good lyrics that was easy to listen to over and over again when I was a kid. The chorus went, uh, if we walk with the wise, we will grow wise. Whoa, oh, that's the proverb, right? If we walk with the wise, we'll grow wise. If we walk in the light, then our path will be bright. Whoa, oh. Uh, But the verse uh, of the song actually told the story of how that happens, because when we talk about wisdom, I mean, how do we usually think about it? We think of a, of a sage or a monk or an old man on a mountain who is wise. 
But the song by Stephen Curtis Chapman tells a really practical story about how wisdom comes. He says, I prayed a prayer for wisdom just like a farmer prays for rain, because I know that I must have it to survive in this life. And I stared out in the distance because it seemed so far away, and I waited for the lightning, but the lightning and the thunder never came. So I took a look beside me to my left and to my right, and I saw people full of wisdom on the rise in my life. And it started to come clearer. I began to understand that my prayer was being answered. It's all part of God's plan. If we walk with the wise, we will grow wise. You see what he's saying? Wisdom isn't something that strikes you in a one-time amazing event like a bolt of lightning. It's something that you pick up along the way as you walk with people who have more wisdom than you. They don't have to be a sage. They just have to give you something that you don't already have. And he says that he prays for it like a farmer prays for rain. In other words, he really knows that it's necessary. So now listen to David in verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Two things. David is not lifting up his soul to the man upstairs. He's lifting it up to Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's why it's in all caps. And second, that lifting of the soul toward Yahweh uh, is his version of saying, I need you, like a farmer prays for rain. And he tells us why this is important in verse 2. First, because he trusts God, the one true God. And second, David has inward problems. And third, he has outward problems. And he's going to expand on this throughout the psalm, but this is the summary. Inwardly, he faces shame, and outwardly, he faces enemies. And now he's going to tell us more about what lifting up the soul means. First, in verse 3, he says that one aspect of the lifting up of soul is waiting. None who wait on you, Yahweh, will be put to shame. Waiting on the Lord somehow solves the inward problem of shame. In fact, he says that shame is for those who are doing the opposite of waiting, the wantonly treacherous. What a phrase, wantonly treacherous? Is that you? Uh, this phrase is, is actually what makes word-for-word -word translations of the Bible a little clunky sometimes. Uh, it's hard for the reader. Uh, what this phrase, wantonly treacherous, essentially means is that you are a traitor. You deal in deceit, which we know is empty dealing. But the opposite, waiting, not dealing in deceit, but waiting, brings good things. Uh, you know, Europe is on a different restaurant schedule than America. Uh, when most of us would be ready to stand in America, when we'd be ready to stand up and walk out or, or call the waiter over and demand that our food be brought out, uh, in Europe, in that same amount of time, there's probably about 10 more minutes to wait before the food actually comes out. Uh, and from my experience of living in Europe, that wait was well worth it. Some of the best restaurants I I've, I've, have ever gotten to eat in were in Europe when I was willing to wait on good food. But traitors are the ones who give up and walk out and go their own way. So David says in verses 4 and 5, teach me how to be a person who waits and teach me how to be a person who walks. That's why he says, teach me your paths and lead me in your truth. 
So to lift up the soul is walking and waiting the path of God's truth, because God is our salvation, not ourselves. We must know this, and we must be taught this, and that's the only way to overcome inward shame and outward enemies, according to David. Walking God's path and waiting on God are how we gain wisdom. So, uh, that's the gaining of wisdom. Now, how is David defining wisdom for us? Right? Remember how I said earlier that wisdom is skill in the art of godly living? That definition requires us to ask, what exactly is godly living? But too often we make a mistake in defining wisdom. We think wisdom is a secret knowledge that someone uses to get ahead in the world, right? Uh, Gandalf knows the secret things of Middle-earth. The oracle in the Matrix knows Neo's future. Yoda knows the ways of the Force. And sometimes people prey on that definition of wisdom in order to sell you things, right? I'm the financial guru, the financial Yoda, who has the knowledge that can help you beat the stock market. Or, I'm the politician who has the secret insider knowledge of Washington and can help you know something about the politics of our day. But wisdom is actually skill. Skill in the art of godly living. It's more like uh, Forrest Gump, right? In that old movie, Forrest Gump is a man who doesn't seem very smart. In fact, he's a little dumb, right? But he joins the army. And in a hilarious scene, uh, the drill sergeant gets in Forrest Gump's face and yells at him. And he says, Gump, what is your sole purpose in this army? And Gump looks at him and answers back, to do whatever you tell me, drill sergeant. Now, the drill sergeant then takes the Lord's name in vain and declares that Forrest Gump is a genius. He must have an IQ of 160. Gump has success in the army because he lives by the army's very simple rule. Do whatever the sergeant tells you. He has skill in the art of army living. Gump observes the drill sergeant's commands with absolute fidelity. He sees and does. He learns by example and keeps the example he learns from. He hears and lines up his life with the commands. That's what David says in verse 10. You have skill in the art of godly living when you keep God's covenant and God's testimonies. Observe them with fidelity. God's word is full of testimonies, witnesses, accounts of God's action in the world. See them and do them. Learn by example. God's covenant is his promise and a picture of his character. Hear it and line up your life with the commands. You too, then, can be Forrest Gump. You can be a genius. The only thing out of place for us in this example is the military's example. Instead, let's look at how David paints the picture of who Yahweh, the God of Israel, is. Go up to verse 6, and let's look uh, and work our way back down to verse 10 to define wisdom. David asks God to remember some things and to not remember others. First, remember your steadfast love and mercy in verse 6. Mercy here is the intimate emotional connection that God has toward David, like a loving father to a son. You might say that uh, mercy kisses boo-boos and holds and hugs very tightly. 
Now, chesed, or steadfast love, means that God sets His love on you. He, more, he moves toward you first before you even realize it. David says in verse 7, Please don't remember the things that I've done that prove that I don't deserve your fatherly love. But instead, remember me according to your fatherly love. In saying, don't remember the bad things, David isn't asking God to bend the rules and just wink at his wrongdoing. He's saying, hey, do what a good dad does and don't just leave me here in this. Instead, inscribe your character on my heart. Show me how I can move forward from this. And that's essentially verse 8. God is good and upright. He deals on the level. He doesn't shift the floor on you. Instead, He instructs sinners in the path. That walking idea is here again getting fleshed out. It's not those who are already righteous that He instructs. It's the ones who aren't righteous that He instructs. In verse 9, it's the humble the ones who recognize that they're down and out, who are led on the path. The the literal translation of what is right in that verse actually is one word in Hebrew. The same word is elsewhere translated justice. He leads the humble in justice. And this word often occurs with righteousness, which we don't see that word in this psalm, but it also occurs in context with two other words that are all over this psalm, right? Steadfast love and faithfulness that describe God. Now, I'm pointing this out because I want you to get bored uh, over time with me saying justice and righteousness along with steadfast love and faithfulness. These four terms used together are all over the Old Testament. Here's yet another example of it. I know I've pointed this out uh, before. I want you to see it because it's everywhere and it's everywhere there because it's important. We need to observe steadfast love and faithfulness that belong to God and the justice and righteousness that come from the character of God, we need to observe them with fidelity. That's what it means to keep His covenant and His testimonies. So from gaining to defining, and now to finding wisdom. Where do we find wisdom? David gives us something important in verses 11 through 15. One other mistake that we often make in talking about wisdom is that it is bare knowledge, not connected to anything. Wisdom exists, you know, somewhere out there. It's something out there that we have to grab onto. It's beyond us somehow. But in these verses, David shows us that wisdom is historically rooted in God's relationship to his people, not just his people as a whole, but to individuals. Where am I getting that? Look at what David describes. In verse 11, David describes his personal guilt. In verse 12, he describes the Lord's instruction. In verse 13, he describes the promises of the covenant, blessing or well-being, offspring, and land. In verse 14, he describes the intimate friendship of God that comes with the covenant. In verse 15, he describes the cycle of covenant living. Wisdom for individuals is rooted in the biblical story of God's action toward His people. God set His name on His people who chose to act against Him and brought guilt on themselves. 
That's the story of the garden. It's the story also of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the story of the nation of Israel. And it's also David's story. He did things that brought guilt on himself. And he describes that guilt here like a foot caught in a net. David's lying and his adultery are just two examples of things that get him caught. And the more he struggles, the more tangled he will get, like walking into a spider web. But David was promised by God to have a man sit on his throne forever. That's a covenant promise. And it comes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So then he asks, who is the man who fears the Lord in verse 12? Well, in that moment, it was David in 2 Samuel 7. He feared the Lord and received the covenant promise. The promise of the covenant, it came all the way from Abraham through the generations to David. God promised Abraham land and seed and blessing. And he reiterates that promise to David as king. But this promise even goes all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and rule it as my vice rulers. But in a simple traitor's act, Adam and Eve defied God. Haven't we all? We have all feared not getting what we want more than we have feared the Lord who has given us everything in his good creation. As Adam and Eve saw something they wanted and took it, so did David. The guilt of that act broke the intimate friendship of that promised covenant connection. When we see the word covenant and around it we see the words land and offspring and blessing, we know what story it is that we're talking about. Where do we find wisdom? We find it in that story. Wisdom is found in the story of a God who creates the world good and shares it with people whom he creates to enjoy and rule over the creation. Rather than dump the whole thing in the trash at, first, at the first sign of humans messing up, God instead pardons guilt. His story is a story of plucking feet out of nets that they get tangled in. Individual wisdom is not withheld from sinners. It is not knowledge on high on a mountain disembodied from real life. Wisdom comes and gets close to us. Wisdom is a promised story of God's intimate friendship, a friendship with benefits of land, seed, and blessing, a friendship that actually forgives guilt. Who is the man who fears the Lord? David asks in verse 12. The answer is verse 15, the one whose eyes are ever toward Yahweh, the one who will pluck your feet out of the net. Whether you're caught in a net of inward trouble, of personal guilt, or the net of outward trouble, of enemies out to get you, God's promise comes to rescue you. We gain wisdom walking and waiting. We define wisdom by God's character. We find wisdom in God's story. And now we ask for wisdom. Are you able to see the simplicity of all this? I mean, I didn't just whip up this, serv- uh, this sermon with these catchphrases. This psalm, uh, you know, is not microwavable. But it is like a really good sauce that simmers and gets reduced down. You know, you simmer off the excess water so that the flavor intensity comes out in a good sauce. 
Personal wisdom works the same way. It has a few simple ingredients, but when you put them together and you simmer off the excess water of the goofy things in your life, the strong flavor of wisdom comes out in it. And David rounds out this psalm by saying, I need that. I need that strong flavor in my life. I need the walking and waiting. I need the character of God. I need to remain connected to Yahweh's story. So David asks in these last seven verses, David uses seven imperative verbs and he directs them all to God. And if you want to learn something about praying from this psalm, look at how much of the psalm David uses to describe both his situation and his God before he ever starts asking God to do things. Most of us begin our prayers with, Dear God, do these things, please. What if instead we took time to describe our situation, describe our God, and then ask for the things that line up with it? Look at how David asks. First, in verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. David is saying, do the thing that you do, God. Your story is about coming to your people, especially when they have inward and outward trouble. I have both loneliness and affliction. I need your sheer grace. Second, in verse 17, he ends with the verb, bring me out, or more literally, lead me out. That's that same thing he said uh, about people in the net. I know you lead people like that out of the net. So go ahead and lead me out too. David feels the weight of his heart inwardly. Third and fourth, in verse 18, he feels the weight outwardly in affliction and trouble, um, which uh, trouble, which is here more literally uh, the word toil. So in other words, not only is David's heart weighed down, but so are his hands. He's uh, been working on his problems in the world, but it's not turning out right as much as he's working on it. And so he asks God to see this, see this toil, see the weight on his heart and consider, right? God, look at me, see the weight on me. And then he literally asks God to lift off my sins because the weight of them is crushing. The fifth verb is in verse 19. Again, see See, consider my outward problems. I have enemies who hate me, and their hatred of me is violent. And I think this is a great prayer to pray in election season, because there are people on both sides of the political aisle who have violent hatred. Now, of course, we believe our side is peaceful, but their side is violent. Come on, let's be honest. Let's be way more honest. There is violent hatred at both political extremes. God looks on it. And David then asks him to do something about it. So sixth, in verse 20, David cries out, Guard my soul. Deliver me from the outward violence and deliver me from the inward shame of believing that only I'm right and everyone else is wrong. You are my refuge. In ancient warfare, cities had walls so that if the the battle didn't go well on the plain, then the army could retreat into the fortress of the city where the enemy could not overrun them because of the height and the thickness of the walls. God, be that wall around me. Let perfection and honesty keep me because I wait for you. 
The wall of God around David is not David's perfection and honesty, but God's. And David inside that wall waits for his enemies to break as they pound on the wall. The last ask is in verse 21. David asks God to redeem all us individuals from our troubles. Israel is one nation of many individuals. In praying for himself, David is praying for all of them as well. And up to this point, we've found the how, what, and where of personal wisdom. Now we need the who. Not only from who do we ask for wisdom, but who will bring it to us ultimately? Is there a way to be sure that we can have this wisdom permanently? So go back to those last seven verbs. God turns to us with grace and mercy because he first turned and put our guilt on the cross. There is one who leads us out of distress because God led him out of the grave on the third day. God sees our situation up close and personal by the indwelling Holy Spirit. That same Spirit guards the hearts and minds of those who have made Jesus their refuge. Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm and the one on whom we wait to come again. He began the work of redeeming all individuals who find him as their city wall, and he will complete that work at the end of time. David looked forward to covenant completion as a faithful Israelite. Now Christians look forward to the same covenant completion that David did, and this time it is in God's Son, Jesus. We gain personal wisdom from walking and waiting on Jesus. We define personal wisdom when we see Him as the fulfillment of God's covenant and allow the Spirit to inscribe His character on your heart through faith. This is the story where you find personal wisdom. It's not out there somewhere. It has been unfolding throughout time in the plan of God, from Israel to the church. So have you sought wisdom from the best source? Wisdom is not for old sages. It's not given in a lightning strike. It's not a a secret hidden body of knowledge. Wisdom is personal, practical. It's connected to a larger story that encompasses all of time. It brings together all the good things we experience in the world, and it fights back against the bad, both outside us and inside us. This psalm is a whole workshop on personal wisdom. If only you will walk with it and wait on it. You can find not only the how, what, and where of wisdom, but you can ultimately find the who. Jesus Christ wants to give you personal wisdom. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Almighty God, the Lord of steadfast love and faithfulness, grant us grace for our inward guilt and mercy from our outward enemies, that we may walk and wait on you, observing your covenant sealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.